Welcome everybody to the five o'clock session, which is Saving Lives One Choice at a Time with Christine Jackman and Rick Morton. Um, and my name's Natasha Cheecher and I'll be facilitating this session. Um, it's most important that we acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respect to their elders past, present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with this land and acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. Um, and I always think, I say this every year in Adelaide, but I think there's something quite magical about this little piece of land um, where the Writers' Week happens. It does generate beautiful audiences and conversations. So thank you for joining us today, especially at the end of a really gruelling year where we're literally picking up where we left off. You know, a year ago, I was very fortunate to be here. It was the last big public gig that I was involved in and we didn't really know if we'd be able to do it again so it's just wonderful to see you all here. Thank you. So I have some boring housekeeping which is please turn your phones to silent. Less boring if you are tweeting or Instagramming the hashtag is hashtag ADLWW and we do ask you to support our authors and Adelaide Writers Week by purchasing books in the book tent and there'll be a book signing at the end of the session for authors who are here. And um, it's very important that you uh, comply with COVID safe restrictions. They're there for a reason. Um, so we need to make sure that everyone's physically distanced and it's crucial as it's a key condition of our COVID management plan that was approved by SA Health. So could you just check that you're maintaining social distance um, and then we can get started. So <laughs> everyone checked? Good. <laughs> so, I've got some questions for both our authors, who I note are both from Queensland and are both former News Limited journalists. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Tasmanian, so you I can say that. You don't have much choice in Queensland. <laughs> no, well, you don't have that much choice in Tasmania it's either, Christine. It's actually just... part of the state's childcare policy, I think. <laughs> We can get back to that. <laughs> um, so these are really two wonderful books. I just talked about COVID and the year that we've had. I, there's nobody on the planet who hasn't had a testing and trying year. I certainly have had. And I really deeply wish that I'd had both these books at the beginning of last year as kind of roadmaps to help me navigate some of the really difficult personal and professional challenges I faced. And so I'd really like to thank the festival organisers for pairing these two books and authors together. It's always beautifully and intelligently and empathetically curated, this writer's week. So this is no exception. So Christine's book is called um, Turning Down the Noise, The Quiet, Quiet Power of Silence in a Busy World. And Rick's is my year of living vulnerably. I'd like to ask, they're very big books, they're slender books, but they're big books, there's a lot in them. I want to try and get us across as much of the, of the framework of the intellectual and emotional framework of the books as possible today. Um, so what I'll do is ask each of the writers to just 
give a little tiny snapshot of what you're saying in the book. And both, and just to highlight, both of those books deal with some quite confronting and big changes that the writers make in their life and dealing with some things that we often dance around and um, engage in displacement activity to avoid. And so ask them why this year of all years they stepped into that space and made those changes and what do they think would have happened if they didn't? So I'll start with Christine. Okay, um, snapshot first, maybe? Yeah, well, you can answer it all. It's really one question, one mm. big question. It's like, why and why now? Why now? Um, I think we are all living in sort of increasingly noisy lives. And what I mean by that is not just the auditory noise that's around most of us, if we, particularly if we live in, in cities, but also the digital noise um, that comes with particularly engaging in work, but people who are on social media, we're all there, right? So we have no we carry much more noise around in our head. Uh, now you add to that the fact that I think that we have certainly in my generation become people who are quite success with busyness. And by busyness I particularly mean sort of productivity. You know, what are you doing? What do you, you have to do more? And that makes your, your life noisier. And I guess for me, I had my sort of moment of truth at sort of what should have been the pinnacle of my career. And it was, we were, I was living on the sort of leafy harbour, a harbour side suburb in um, Sydney. I was in one of those executive communications jobs, which means you have to carry two phones because you're really, really important. <laughs> You know, I was travelling a lot, so the, the, the guys at um, Sydney Airport on the security um, screening station actually knew me by name. Um, and I was supposed to be really happy. That was supposed to be, you know, look how far you've got in life. I had ministers and, and CEOs of some of Australia's biggest companies on my phones. Um, but instead, um, I was constantly unwell. I, I never got to spend time with my children when I wasn't actually trying to juggle something else or, and, and, um, or I wasn't feeling like I have to sort of sneakily look at this email while I'm paying attention to my kids who are then in primary school. I had a relatively new relationship and that was amazing and I wasn't seeing him. <laughs> and then the, the tipping point was um, that my father, uh, who um, we were both in, in Sydney and he was in Brisbane and he broke his... Um, had a bad fall after having a stroke and broke his hip. Um, and then a little while later, I uh, was diagnosed with advanced melanoma, being from Queensland, the world capital of melanoma. And I think um, what I'll say is if I hadn't made big changes then, if I hadn't realised I needed to quiet my life down, make an effort to be present, uh, where would I be now? Sicker? Possibly single. <laughs> And in Sydney. And, and in Sydney, yeah. Not, not here. And probably working on the weekend for an executive um, PR crisis or something. Thanks, Christine. Rick? Uh, well, I am single and still in Sydney. Um, <laughs> and the argument, the jury's out about whether I'm sicker. So um, my, mine came about, I guess, so in uh, early 2019, this is on the cover of the book, but I was diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which I had never heard of in my life despite writing a whole first book about intergenerational trauma and all of these things that I thought applied to everyone else except me. And 
when I finally went and saw um, a specialist about it, he diagnosed me within half an hour and told me what this meant, which was this kind of um, overcorrection um, to deal with this great absence of love from my father in my early childhood. And the symptoms were exactly what I had been living um, for my you know, entire adult life. And I'd already, unbeknownst, without the diagnosis, I had already started changing my life in very slow ways because I had realised that I had shut off from the world and that I had stopped openly loving and hugging people and being available to them, I guess, in my life. And it, had, it was making me sick. And it wasn't, uh, you know, helping when I actually did stop work or running away from all of these problems. And so I kind of sat down and decided that I needed to come up with a kind of a schema, I guess, for all of the ways in which I might replace love in my own life. And it's love, you know, when I told my mum that I'm writing a book about love, she burst out laughing. And she's like, what do you know about love? Um, and the tr it's not about romantic love. It's about everything but romantic love. And the ways in which, you know, beauty, uh, touch, uh, the self come into our kind of conceptions about how we live and find joy and, and happiness, which is not a destination but a process, I think. And that's why I started doing this. And, of course, all of this was pitched, signed, sealed, and, and I was writing it as COVID hit. And then it became more important than ever, unfortunately. So um, that's the, the potted history of it. And so what do you think would have happened if you hadn't written it? I, I honestly, if I hadn't done any of this work, because it's not just about writing it, it's about actually understanding that this is an answer for me and it is the process. So, like, I, I had shut off. Like, I was not an open person and it was making me deeply, deeply unhappy. And I kind of... I spent a bit of time in the first part of this book talking about how, you know, there are some other cultures around the world that have words for things that we don't name in the English language. Um, so, like, the Finnish have a, have a word for... Um, I think it's, like, bouncy cushion satisfaction, um, which is a peculiar feeling of sitting down in a chair and feeling so excited about the comfort of that particular cushion in that moment. And now, we would have experienced that in our lives, but not so specifically that we can name it. And it's the same with love, and it's the same with happiness and things that you find beautiful. If you don't name them or call them out... Um, for what they are. And I, I mean things as beautiful as a moment, um, you know, in the morning when the sun's just about to rise and everything's quiet, except, like, you've still got, like, the hangover of frogs from the rain, things like that. And if you don't call attention to them, then you don't actually build the infrastructure in your own head um, to, to notice them, to pay attention. And that's what got me through. And it's not... It's bigger than just beauty and love. I mean, there's a whole chapter in there about touch... Um, which I realised was the one thing that had really sent me mad in my early 20s, was because I had stopped touching anyone beyond, like, a quick um, pat on the shoulder. And I was screaming out <coughs> for contact, basically. Um, and I had not just not had it, but I'd spurned it and deliberately pushed it away. And that made me incredibly unwell. And I don't do that now. And I'm much happier and much more comfortable in my own self and confident, for that matter. So if I may say, <clears throat> um, this kind of subject matter is not exactly standard fodder for news limited journalists practising or last. <laughs> um, what you've each done uh, in similar yet different ways is enter some extremely personal and often painful terrain, I think especially for Rick because some of the incidents of abuse and violence that you describe are really quite 
difficult to read sure. um, and can only have been more difficult to live, never mind talk about to the world, Rick. <laughs> so, um, and you, in a, in, in a different way, Christine, you take us on a journey that almost nobody I know who work, works in corporate comms would even <laughs> step on in their clicky-clacky little shoes, right? <laughs> so... How did you how did you traverse this terrain of the exceedingly personal? I mean, and it goes into the spiritual. It goes into there's a lot of it's also very intellectual and philosophical. There are immensely rich books that we could talk for three weeks about, actually. <laughs> but how how did you go there from there? Because it's really yeah. different. It's a great question. <laughs> it's I don't know about you, Rick, but there's a there's a wonderful thing as a journalist that you get to do sometimes, which is you know you get to research stuff that you know you're just interested in if you're good at pitching you know as particularly if you've moved out of just general news yeah. you, you had a column at one point that was oh, excellent God. for yeah. that and and features so at first I did fool myself because I had a publisher I'd previously written a political book and my publisher was like you know whatever you want to write about just you know we'll 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 publish so I thought this is great I can just explore all of these ideas without and without really getting involved. I was going to do a sort of a, a feature take, a journalistic take, and I just... I went to write the setup for it, the very early chapter, and really quickly I realised um, that's just not going to cut it. It just... You, and it's actually, I think, almost a sinking feeling when you realise you got to get honest here and just put it on the page or you're going to be, you, the, the reader's going to know you're an imposter. You're holding back the power, I think, in these sorts of books. Because what we're talking about, it's it's not tangible, you know. It's feelings and stuff that, you know, Rupert Murdoch may not understand. <laughs> um, I love this new lay motif that's built into yeah, this. Yeah, I know. You can it, it yeah. ask his father. Well, and it, yeah. but it's actually worth... It, it, for me, it was very. I, it, it did play large in my mind that at a time when our media has become much more angry and more cynical than ever, I thought, you know, how is this book going to be received? Am I going to just be sound like a wanker for for doing this <laughs> stuff? You know, um, and I have had since. Um, journalists I know who've in interviews sort of looked at me, journalists I've worked with in the press gallery and who've looked at me and said in interviews, I had no idea that that was going on in your head. But, you know, and sometimes when... And that was really brave. There's nothing like the brave word, is it? You go, oh, OK. So, so like, you know, OK, maybe I shouldn't have gone that far if I'm brave. But it also says to you that... That that's I'm doing my job. If I think we all have parts of ourselves that we feel shame about, that we feel conf conflicted about, that we try to hide, I really do believe that. And I think if it helps it, either Rick or I put that out there, and people feel like, oh yeah, I get that. That's me too. Then then that's that's part of doing your job. So what I tried to do is take that really messy stuff that was really causing me turmoil and then take the journalistic side and go, well, rather than just say, oh, and I meditated and it made me feel better, to really delve into, as you do, the sort of, well, what the hell's going on in my brain here? What's going on in my body? Why do I feel this bad? And how can I make myself feel better or help myself feel better? 
Um, sorry, I was just seeing it. Um, something as you were finishing that that point is when you were saying that you know other people clearly feel these things too, right? And like my family always thought I was weird, um, <laughs> like incredibly weird. But I'm like I'm not that weird. I don't think that I, the things that are going on in my head are unique to me. Like I do, and I have heard from people after my first book that they you know they saw something in themselves there, and it sounds. Like, I'm still from a kind of a different world where it feels um, like I'm not capable of claiming that because it's just like, oh, what, a, what an idiot. Like, just why have feelings and you're not really helping people and art doesn't matter. It does. And these are the kind of books that I like to read. And the way I think about the world, um, very much so, is through science and philosophy. And the beauty for me about this book, and I don't know whether this will translate to the reader, um, is that because I wrote one already, I kind of had more latitude with this one to write the ultimate Rick Morton book, <laughs> which, wow. where, yeah. which, as in for me, as yeah. in not necessarily a good thing for you, um, where I, go, I dive into science and philosophy and, and things that annoy my mum to no end. I remember once telling her about quantum mechanics and then she just snapped down the phone. She's like, oh, fucking Einstein's got a lot to answer for. Because <laughs> she's like, I don't understand it, Rick. I don't understand it. Just talk to me about real things. I'm like, it is real. This stuff is real. And this book is a way for me to dive into all of that wonderful, beautiful substance about, you know, our brains, our self. Um, you know, I am as much as I am a success because of my brain, I am a prisoner because of my brain. And I said this on the drum the other night, you know, for, unless, you've, unless you've had open um, skull surgery, your brain has never seen the outside world, and yet it tells you absolutely everything um, about your reality, like nothing that you know or understand has not been filtered through that thing. And it is so powerful. And why not bring science and philosophy into understanding how it is that we, we live and function with this little fleshy bag of meat in our heads, which is um, not often my best friend, but someone I've come to um, understand as sort of like a boarder or a renter in my house that I put up with <laughs> and who occasionally pays the rent. <laughs> I think that's one of the things I really like about both books is the capacity to marry that, that the philosophical and the scientific and they're really quite difficult to get your head around with something really applied and you don't find that a lot in Australian conversations where we have this really tedious, oh, that's elitist. So you've either got to dumb it down or you've got to make it so impenetrable that nobody without a doctorate can understand it. So you, you, you've both really captured that really well. Is there something you want to say about that? Because I think, I mean, is that from your background? There's a point where you, a place towards the end of your book where you talk about your role as a journalist mm. being to listen. Is it to listen or to observe or something? There's a particular form of words you use, which, is, which, which to my mind... Um, displayed, a, I don't know, a kind of humility in the face of other people's experiences and knowledges and a kind of curiosity. Rick talks about curiosity mm. a lot at the end of his. So, again, I think that's really quite a sort of magical element that we could do a lot more with. Well, I think in terms of media, I think, again, we've become very much a... And this isn't just in Australia but all around the world. A media, our media is increasingly about opinion first and reaction mm. first. So to actually listen and, and try and understand, um, you know, that was originally the role of the journalist was to go out and look at the world and talk to people and report it, not go out with a preconceived notion of how we're going to make the world. 
Um, so, yeah, I think that... Um, I've forgotten the original question. Oh, I was Sorry, just, so I, deep. I, I was really, I was really talking about it's about your capacity to build or find connective tissue between differently situated audiences or people or perspectives and make it into a bigger whole. Mm. So if we come back to that, the way the media world landscape has changed in the last twenty years and how it's become much janglier and shoutier and less listeny <laughs> and less mutually respectful, how, how do you operate in the social media or the digital, digital media landscape given that it's changed so much? How, how can a quiet voice or a quiet ear um, find a different path, you know, a path, if you like, of beauty or a path of stillness or a path of... Peace, for want mm. of a better word. Well, sort of jumping slightly ahead, my my book has at the end of it very practical tips about doing that sort of thing. And one of the, in terms of how do you find silence, quiet practices, and quiet time, you know, and quiet places in your life, and to incorporate them because I don't think we, as much as we may occasionally want to, we're not going to all run away and sort of. <laughs> join a monastery or hide in a cave or something like that. I, it has occurred to me <laughs> when <laughs> I've had two... Like my children are 15 months apart, so and I was a single <laughs> mum. I did actually have a moment in peak hour traffic of realising I'd missed my vocation as a Buddhist nun. <laughs> um, anyway, um, but, yeah, so I think that I would say... You're... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't put this here. So you dangerous. are amazing with social media. You're very prolific. Uh, yes. I am very very careful these days because I find that, um, well, we've just seen it exposed for what it is. I mean, none of the social media platforms are designed with our needs or our interests in, at heart. And for me, um, being caught in that swirl, particularly given that I spent 20 years as a journalist being trained to have it, you know, to be out there and pressing my point and making my argument, I find often the easiest thing is to step back. But my point about that, and I came to this quite late because I, at the end of my book, I think towards the end of the part that you reference, I thought, well, is this... I can't just be silent. If, <laughs> you know, we're at a point in, in the world's history in our, in our, and in our nation's history where there are so many things where we need to be prepared to stand up and speak up about... But I realised that um, there's a wonderful um, quote by a um, Christian philosopher, um, Henri Nouwen, who says um, first uh, that silence operates in a number of ways. And first, it um, it guards the fire. And now I'm not going to be able to remember the thing. But it, and and it, first, it makes us pilgrims. Sorry. And where I see that it makes us pilgrims is we be begin to navigate our inner world we get to know ourselves again when we stop distracting ourselves with everything that's going on around us uh, then it guards the fire it re it allows you to re-energize and just you know rest and replenish but then it teaches us how to speak so third silence teaches us how to speak and what I what I mean by that is that when you do go to speak or write or perhaps engage on social media you don't do it from that reflexive um, or angry, outraged um, sense ability. You bring really considered words and 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 emotions 
to your engagement and similarly not just in social media but with your family or your friends or in your workplace um, that little bit of, of of silence or quiet time or downtime can feed that so we actually become more powerful communicators that's what I'd like to believe that truth yeah. amen. <laughs> amen that's amazing um, I was gonna just tiptoe off that because I mean that is one of the definitions of vulnerability right and one of the the things that people fear, particularly men, about being vulnerable, quote-unquote, is that they're not strong, um, which is such a, such a furphy. And I, you know, the, the work that goes into being quiet or being considered um, and trying to think about ways to bring these ideas to a world that is a bit frazzled um, is actually, it takes uh, discipline, I guess. And, you know, I had to bring this all back to my mum, but these are my most recent experiences. I was home for the Christmas holidays. I made it back to Queensland and I still had to write a couple of chapters of this book and mum would just leave me alone most of the day. But every now and then she'd come up, she's like, I thought you were meant to be writing um, or working. I'm like, I am. She's like, well, you're not doing anything. I'm like, I know, I'm thinking. And we, we had this kind of uh, cosmic battle between her who has worked physically her entire life um, and me who has not done any physical labour. Um, my hands will show it. Um, and her just trying to wrap her head around the fact that, am I taking the piss? Or am I actually doing work? And the answer was a little bit of both. Uh, <laughs> like I was trying to have a bit of a relaxing time, but I also I needed to know the hardest part about writing this book was not the writing, it was knowing what I was going to say because it had to be true and it had to be real. And um, I think we are missing that in this world. Like I, I'm, I, I do have opinions sometimes, but I like to think that they're most strongly voiced when they're based on something that I've lived deeply. And, and when, when I don't know about something, I shut the hell up. Um, and I sit back and the best, my best quality, I think, has always been partly out of fear and partly out of um, a kind of a, a latent or an innate understanding that this is the most helpful thing for me, is that I sit back in groups when people are talking and I assess the field and I find out where they stand on everything and only then do I offer an opinion. Um, and part of that was just pure fear because I didn't want to ever say anything stupid. But I don't think that's a bad thing that to have in your life to guard against saying something stupid if you... If you really don't want to be seen to be silly, um, pay attention, sit back, listen for a bit, and then, you know, maybe things work out for the best. Well, there's a part in your book, Christine, where you talk about that in workplaces and you talk about um, characteristics that make workplaces dysfunctional, and one of them is the absence of silence in meetings, for example, <laughs> oh, and the other is what you call ritual meetings, which I loved, because <laughs> I, I work as a mainly as a change consultant, with um, often with people and organisations who are very resistant to the kind of change that will make them more healthy and functional. <laughs> and one of the things that's hardest to break is this habit of people filling all the available space talking oh. mm. rather than understanding that silence is part of a conversation. And then there's the ritual meetings, the meetings we must have. So... That's a bit of a provocation to ask because um, obviously COVID has been a huge disruption in all kinds of ways, but including in the way that we work. Do you think that we're on the... I want to use the word precipice. It's probably not the best word. Do you think we've, we're, we're at a tipping point where we are likely to find better ways of working well together as well as... It, as well as um, other kinds of interpersonal contact, whether that's in intimate in a personal sense or through social media or other things. Do you think, are you optimistic about that changing? Oh, like so many of these things, there's the, there are two sides 
to the story, right? And anybody who sat through back-to-back -back Zoom meetings from home knows that it could get worse. <laughs> a lot of that, a lot of you know, the bad habits just followed us into our into our house. On the other hand, I mean, I've worked from home, particularly in the last few years. That was not new to me, and finding and managing your own productivity, and that's become a bit of a tainted word for me in an advanced capitalist sort of economy, the idea that we're all just productive units and that's our value. I, I, I resist that. <laughs> but managing my own productivity, you know, has actually really taught me, you know, it's not about sitting at a desk for eight hours a day in front of a keyboard. But so many of our workplaces now are unlike that. Um, and I think... In fact, it's interesting, Rick, I mean, you're talking about your mum working a physical job. Yes. Yeah. The more and more we have transitioned and more of us have transitioned into sort of what they'd call sort of knowledge labour, people sitting in front of screens, I think, and I posit this in my chapter on work, the, the, the less good we've become at measuring what the hell we're actually supposed to be <laughs> doing, you know, you haven't, you haven't, you know, fed a hundred sheep or, you know, <laughs> you know, picked apples or whatever. You, and, if, if, and as our organisations have become larger, and at least with journalists, th this was one of the big things for us. I mean, one of the great things in a way is that you at least knew, I have a story, this is my story, this is roughly how many words and it has to be filed then. Yep. So that's actually, you know, you can measure productivity there. But I think as it's become less... Um, it's been h harder to do as in our organisations have become bigger and more esoteric. What you see in many offices is what I call performative busyness. <laughs> and I discovered that when I became, you know, important enough that I had an executive assistant um, <laughs> who did many good things for me. But one day very early in, in my job, she walked into my office and said, your calendar's empty, you've got to put stuff on there. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, everybody can see it and it's empty. They will think you're not going to do it, not doing anything. And I said, but that's when I am doing <laughs> stuff. That's when I'm sitting at my desk working, not going to meetings. And it started me thinking about how much of this stuff, what I call performative busy, look at us doing stuff. We're busy, busy, busy people, sending emails and Slack and whatever other, area, um, other platforms <laughs> we use. And, and we're in our open plan office where everybody can see us working and we're in our meetings. Um, and I think that that stuff, again, the arrival of neuroscience, the development of neuroscience has shown that that stuff with multiple uh, interruptions in a day is the worst thing for things like problem solving or creativity or any of that, what, what people call now deep work. Your brain can't do it. Um, and yet we exist sort of in this sphere now in many offices of, and many workplaces of thinking that shows how committed we are to a job. So are we optimistic about that changing? Yeah. Oh, God. Um, no. <laughs> He's more honest than I am. Why I mean, not? Why no, not? I, th really? I think things will um, change, but it's the same thing. Like, we think that everything's going to become telework again since COVID, and that's been the promise since, what, the early yes. 2000s or late 1990s um, with the, the last dot-com bubble. Um, humans are weird creatures, we're strange, and we are not that good at regulating ourselves, um, which is why I think it's important to do the work of thinking about these things, because um, you're 100% right. Like, I used to, when I was still at News Corp, um, and occasionally had to deputise as chief of staff, 
um, have to go into editorial meetings. And I, I only had to brief the stories on my list for like 10 minutes, but I had to stay in there for the full hour while all these blokes mostly were talking about ideas and news and what they wanted here and who was being fucking stupid in Canberra. And I was thinking the entire time and every day, the most stressed I've ever been was when I was doing nothing in that room, mm. thinking about all of the copy I had to edit back mm. at my desk when I actually had work to do. And it's, you know, I, I think... I mean, I like to think that I'm trying to be a beacon of that kind of, you know, when you are sitting and still you are performing, you are doing the work, um, particularly in our kind of work where it is about thinking. I mean, they call it the knowledge economy. I'm not sure what we know, but um, I do know that I am sometimes my most um, impactful when I have had a chance to sit down and be still and quiet. So. Well, I actually think the books both model this method in the sense that there is some very... Um, intellectually chewy stuff for the reader to digest and then suddenly you're, you take us, Rick, to swim with a cuttlefish. I love cuttlefish. Or to play the clarinet. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then you take us to 10 days in a retreat on my island home, Tasmania. I know that landscape very well and you describe the trees very beautifully and the uncharacteristic heat of that summer, which we did not <laughs> have this year. Um, and then you take us swimming with turtles and that stuff about Noosa and, then the, and both of you have this relationship to the landscapes of diff really different parts of Queensland. Yours is lush and green and his is dusty and dry. <laughs> and Which is that's also my really, soul. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a really, as a method, as a method to, if you like, seduce the reader and allow her or him to follow you down the trail of breadcrumbs to the, to the end, it's very, very powerful. So I want everybody to walk down that trail <laughs> of breadcrumbs because... Because, you know, you read a lot of books when you share sessions and these are both really unusually compelling, which leads me to the killer question, which is where does that trail of breadcrumbs lead you next? Because these are are books about, I guess, resetting, reframing, reimagining, reviving, healing, restoring, reflecting. And then what? At at the risk of kind of unbundling everything, all the good work we've just done on stage. Um, I, was, I was thinking about this at the start of the year, and part of this, um, I grew up poor, so I have no compunctions talking about money um, because I'm totally classless. Um, but part of this is about the fact that I have financial comfort now, um, personally, not structurally. Um, I don't own anything, um, but I, I don't have to check my bank account every week or every day. And I was thinking about it, like for the first time in my life, I'm doing things that are allowing me to feel like I'm more uh, settled and that's like I'm learning French. Um, I'm about to start learning piano, which I've always wanted to do and I've never had the time or cognitive capacity to dedicate my life to because I've just been stressed, stressed, stressed about everything. And, you know, I've written these two chunky books. Certainly this one, I think, has put some of the ghosts to bed and has done a lot of the work of dealing with a chapter of my life I, I now consider to be over, even though I will always have complex PTSD and I will always be managing it. Um, I know most of the secrets. Um, there will probably be a couple of more that I learn and maybe I'll write a book about it, but what, I, what this has allowed me to do now is at least still my life to the point where I can actually focus on a big, chunky project that I want to focus on, um, which is like a big non-fiction journalistic book. Um, I don't know what it's going to be about yet, but I just want to do something that's like narrative non-fiction um, 
in the in the vein of Chloe Hooper or um, Helen Garner, if I'm allowed to use those names next to mine, which um, if they sue me later, I'm sorry. But that's the kind of stuff I want to do, right? And and I've never been in a position to do it before. Um, and you know, I could have taken last year off um, because I was lucky enough with the advance for this book, but I decided not to because I grew up poor and I had some things I wanted to do with the extra money um, and to help mum out, so I didn't. And I ended last year ended up being the craziest, busiest year of my life. And I don't want to do that again. Like, I want to now sit and, and be still and be considered in the next thing that I do. And I wanted to take time. And I just, it's actually a really beautiful realisation for me because I've, I just want... It's, like, it's almost like I can hear the echo in my own head now of all of that extra space that's just been freed up from having dealt with all of these severe problems. And you can throw a stone in there and, you know, wait 30 seconds before it hits something um, because I've just got extra room now. I've got... Uh, Broad, broad width, uh, broadband capacity, basically, to make good decisions. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I've only I met Rick what half an hour ago, 45 minutes ago. <laughs> so I don't know him at all, um, apart from his work. And I'm not surprised by that answer because I was really struck in your earlier book, which came out what two years ago? 2018. Yeah. So three years ago. Um, that you kept coming back to this idea of being a lawyer, you know, yeah. it's a real, and I thought, oh, Rick, Rick's going to end up being a lawyer. And I don't think you will, but that kind of work that you I did half a law about, degree at university, yeah, not mine. I wrote everyone people, else's yeah. essays um, for money. The, but then there are all these little <laughs> jokes about how I could have been a lawyer and had money. I just want yeah? people to know that I could have been a lawyer, all you right? Like I made it into the class. Well, no. I used to be a lawyer, so I know you could have been a lawyer. <laughs> but that kind of next step book sounds to me like that kind of analytical forensic project, so that Helen yes. Garner, Chloe Hooper kind of work is definitely in that space. So that's a really, that's a really beautiful I'm answer. I'm obsessive when it comes to a yarn I'm working on, which yeah. is why I like being at the Saturday paper, because I get to be obsessive in miniature form every week, but a book obviously would be that, that times 100. Yeah, so. wonderful. Well, look forward to it. <laughs> and what about you, Christine? Where, do your, where does your trail of breadcrumbs lead you next? Well, the first thing is to, um, and we were joking about this before, is to remember, you know, you think, OK, I've done it, I've fixed it, that's it, move on, <laughs> and then you fall off the wagon again and again and again. So I, I live the experience of... We moved back... Um, from Sydney and we deliberately made the choice when we moved to Brisbane because our parents were ageing and I um, I think it's an obscenity that our so much of our work culture now denies us the capacity to be close to those that we love either when they're very very little and need us or when they're very very you know they're ageing and nearing death and need us so we moved back to Brisbane um, so that I could be particularly because I could be close, close to my father. And one of the decisions we made is we are deliberately going to choose something that we can afford that is near nature and that we're not going to be manically running the way we were in Sydney just to pay, you know, well, rent or a mortgage. So those things happen. And then, and then also I, you know, I'm constantly working to keep my life on that balance, as many freelancers do, of, you know, not taking on too much work. <laughs> But not taking on too little, and allowing that amount, and 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 allowing the time, as Rick was saying, to actually just be, be still and be quiet. Because I know I've written a book about how good it is for us, but it's life. It life will fill a vacuum very quickly if you don't every day choose to make it, you know, make it important. Um, from here, <laughs> um, 
I had a whole chapter originally intended for this book about um, turning down the noise in your children's life. Oh, yes. Um, because I really, I feel very strongly about how screens have so quickly infiltrated our kid, kil, kids' worlds um, and how much guilt parents carry, but also that it's now, you know, they've, they've infiltrated schools so that even if you wanted to keep them away from children, um, you can't. So that was something that I've toyed with. But I also have a memoir, <laughs> having done this work, and you say you've cleaned out all the trauma. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, I put it in a cupboard and labelled it very clearly. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's there's a... my year of... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very colourfully as well. Yeah. It's a great colour, yeah. Um, I possibly have a memoir about... I had a, an interesting marriage to a powerful <laughs> man. And I'd read it. <laughs> yes, you would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I am thinking because there's a. I think it's becoming. Uh, women who leave difficult marriages like that often they just want to get away from something, and never talk of it again. And it's a reason why. Um, it's a reason why we see. Uh, without giving too much away, it's the reason why we see things like abuse and um, those sorts of issues continue because they don't get given the words and the recognition that they need. So I'm, I'm thinking tentatively about going there. I'll encourage that strongly. Um, that whole question of the way Australian masculinity has evolved is something that Rick actually deals mm. with in a full frontal way in his work. I found it very <laughs> affecting. Um, and we're both about 20 years older than Rick, so there's this point where he gets, in his book, where he sounds, towards the end, where he sounds very world-weary, and I'm thinking, <laughs> this man is Wait in his it. early 30s. I'm an 80-year-old man <laughs> in a 33-year-old's body. So, you know, we're in And really... I have been since I was, like, seven. Yeah, so. alien. Yeah. But uh, I hate to put people in a generational box, but I yeah. will, because no, you are do. 20 years younger than us, and it's, re you know, the... The contours of Australian masculinity have changed so much in my lifetime. Yes. I'm really excited to see what's going to happen next. So your, your work was really inspiring to me on that front because it, when, when I was 33, nobody was writing that stuff. New. And like now, like yeah. I, I had lunch with my, my friend Monica, whose two sons are in year 11, year 12 and year 10. And like the concept of masculinity is now just so rubbery. It's amazing because yeah. they're just like, they're, they're not holding themselves up to be, and this is on the Gold Coast in Narang at a state high school, but this is not a yeah. kind of elite inner city place. And it's changing and it's amazing to watch. Um, it's, sl sl it's changing slower in some parts of the country than others. Um, I still, you know, have a visceral reaction to the sound of men drunk and having a good time in Queensland. Mm. It's like a real... It's a particular sound that, yeah. I, that I don't hear in Sydney. You hear it in Tasmania. Uh, yes, in, in, the, in the region. It's a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or just well, in the whole Tasmania. Of Tasmania <laughs> yeah, no, I love Tasmania, but it is, you know, so when I was I. growing up there, um, well, all my gay friends left because it was criminal to be gay. Yes, and yes. now. I was in that's primary changed. school when you know, I was that's changed. So, um, but all, but the, the men in your book are there as characters that you don't describe in great detail but you do, do describe them very lovingly your sons mm. your current partner Peter and your father as well um, so they're there in a in a different kind of way so so I am very interested in that question well I was going to say firstly I think 
I, I, I think Rick's um, chapter on masculinity is amazing and I just want... I, I, I was struck the same way you were. I would add, though, I think we need more white heterosexual men yes. to be doing adding their voices and writing about this stuff because it's the missing piece so often still. You think about what the Brit- Brittany Higgins... Um, Thing that uh, scandal that's come out of Canberra this week, and um, that shows that things haven't changed that much amongst you know our leaders. But the missing part of that story is still why did a young Australian man think it was okay to get women drunk and do this? Why aren't we talking more about that? Mm. You know, why aren't we talking about why young privileged young men feel like they can do that? Um, so I think things are changing, but there's certainly... I, I think they're changing a lot because in the course of my, our lifetimes, um, women, gay men, people of colour have suddenly had more of a chance to have their voices heard. And we are slowly moving debates and shifting them, but we can't ignore that there is still a missing voice in so much of, um, in so much of this dialogue that's out there um to go to my book I'm really lucky I think um I had very I have very gentle men in my in my um uh universe in my around me now um so it made a that made a big impact on me too it probably under um, prepared me for going out into the wild, wide, wide world and working somewhere like News Limited, <laughs> which in Brisbane in the 1980s was a fairly unreconstructed workplace to work. So neither of you is going back to News Limited? No. Full time. I don't, I, I don't know that I, even or if I wanted to, I'd be allowed to. Oh. Um. The, f- the funniest thing, actually, I just keep thinking at the moment, is that um, because it's hanging over us, <laughs> one, I would say there are still decent people working at News Limited. Yes. Little, um, one of them's on, on that stage over there. <laughs> over there. And he, um, it's, it's, it keeps striking me. He's like, he's like Tigger. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and where really? are we like, are we like I'm, Eeyore? I'm Eeyore. Or? I've always been yeah. Eeyore. I'm just like, oh, well, yeah. it'll be all right. <laughs> Uh, we're at a writer's festival. Uh, life is great. Yeah. Uh, Sun shining. <laughs> Might rain later on. We'll take some questions now. Um, if you can go, to please go to the microphone where the Writers Week support person is. Ooh. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. No. Here we go. Hi. Um, oh. When I um, suddenly Hello. microphone comes on. When I watched the Mad Men series, I was convinced not only of the fact that every office should have a well-stocked liquor cabinet, um, but also that every office should have a couch. Because the thing that struck me in watching that was that there was a couch in the office and there was time to reflect, to think, to digest, to process. And of course, largely that's because a lot of the other roles were being supported by women in the background. How do we convince our employers, though, that we need to have this time to think and digest that that's productive time? I work in the media, so I can attest to the horribly tight deadlines and the ridiculous expectations. So, I mean, I can't see Google or Facebook, for example, paying for news helping. What do you think? (laughs) Um, Firstly, I really... 
Do you reckon Don Draper was really using that couch to think? <laughs> He's using it to sleep off hangovers and possibly to sleep with women. But, um, <laughs> but he always came up with the creative solution afterwards, you know? <laughs> In, interestingly, I think some of the answers are actually coming out of... of uh, some of the answers are coming out of Silicon Valley. I talk in my book about some of the um, companies that have embraced um, remote working because, you know, these are techie, creative types who have recognised you don't need to be anywhere. They're very comfortable working on devices. Um, but one of them, Basecamp, um, has a head office. It's a project management software company. It's one of the big ones. And I took a lot from a fellow called Jason Freed, who is very passionate about making work better. And I noticed that Lassian has picked up some of these um, ideas as well. But they, there are things that you can do, or at least suggest, become an evangelist for at work. For example, um, a base camp uses something called a library. I think it's called library hours. And they have a, a, a set amount of time every fortnight that's held that you act if you're in the office like you're in a library, <coughs> um, which means you know, you're not having meetings, you're not taking phone calls. If you have to take a phone call, you do so outside. It's for people to do quiet work. So, and that, just that begins to um, acknowledge it, that that small recognition starts to make people think about it. And also, I mean, not everybody can do this, but I also have found that there are times when, I, and again, I, I write about this in, in the work, in my work chapter, just <coughs> saying, um, can I take that, it's like sort of saying, can I take that question on notice? <clears throat> can I think about it and come back to you with an answer? Because I want to give it some serious thought. And I, I have experienced the desire in many workplaces and about, uh, having an answer now. We have to have an answer now. And yet, as I explore, there are very few jobs where you do actually have to have an answer now. You know, maybe if you're an you know, open heart surgeon or you're providing close personal protection or you're landing an um, <laughs> aircraft, it's important to know how to do something right away. But in most cases, we do have the time. And if we really value the work we're doing, saying I'd like to have a think about that is actually paying respect and credit to the work that you're supposed to value. Imagine if we had a thinking couch in a surgeon's yeah. operating room. <laughs> 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 yeah, she's just like, I don't know Scalpel, that I want to be scalp. here anymore. <laughs> um, I, w I won't weigh in too much on that one because I, <laughs> I, I did, a, I, very quickly, I did a 14.5-hour day on Thursday because I had two stories I had to get done for the Sunday paper and some lovely gentleman on Twitter is like, Oh, I'm sorry, but you need to break it up. Uh, you know, no person is productive past six hours of work in an eight-hour period. And I'm just like, um, we go to print tonight. <laughs> like, I'm like, in this particular case, there is no way around that. But in other parts of my week, I will, I will nap. Um, I will sit on the couch and do nothing. And, and sometimes I will screen my editor's calls so that I know what I'm going to tell her when I call her back. I know a Finnish executive <laughs> who allocates 15 minutes of every working hour to reflect and think, not to send emails, not to make calls. So he has 45 minutes in every hour where he does the work stuff and yep. then the other 15 minutes he doesn't do I, anything. I also have cigarette breaks. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, that's, um, 
that's a really good. There's lots yeah, of stuff about this stuff, now online. Yeah. But managing your time rather than allowing your days yeah. to be run by email is one of the first things. And using those productivity apps, apps that block everything out um, as well. Yes, Another I would question. like to speak, thanks. <laughs> um, I'm actually going to pose this question to you, Rick, and I would really like you to spend at least five minutes <laughs> of this hour talking about it specifically. I will Pe do my best. Okay. You're a very jocular man, and I appreciate <laughs> your communication skills. And one thing that you really haven't talked about is the elephant in the room, Ooh. the PTSD. Mm. Now, PTSD is still something in our community that people don't understand. Yeah. People don't really understand it's a serious medical condition, which a lot of youngsters are beginning to experience. And I think it's a very important to respect the mental illnesses within our community and give them credence. And I'd like you to talk about your experience with PTSD, how seriously people took them. Did you experience attitudes about why don't you go out and get a job? Yeah. Um, I did. Oh, she's just being demanding or being a princess or whatever. Did you experience the physical takeover of your mind by your body shaking uncontrollably, etc., etc.? Yeah. And this is something that a writer like you can bring to the forefront for people in Australia to understand properly that it is a mental illness. Well, technically, it's not even a mental illness. Not that I there's know. anything wrong with that. I know. But it is a physiological breakdown in the brain. It's just a matter of things being wired the wrong way. And I do actually spend quite a lot of time in this book talking about what it means to me, but I'll do it quickly now. I mean, complex PTSD particularly is defined by uh, uh, persistent emotional uh, abuse, neglect, or just a kind of ambient lack of love and attention from someone who should be your primary caregiver, whether it's your mother, your father, or a foster family, someone who should be there to protect you who doesn't live up to the job. And what they're finding now in the research around the world is that the effects of this type of PTSD are the same as sexual assault, um, as rape, um, and the coping mechanisms are the same. And the reason they are is because, in my example, I was, I mean, the thing that did the damage to me was not watching my brother get burned. That was his trauma. It didn't help, but for me, it was being left alone on this cattle station with my dad and watching him have an affair with our 19-year-old governors. And what happened when I was seven was that my body was figuring out ways in which it could survive that horrible, horrible hurt. And the ways it did that was to dissociate. So I, I left my body and I don't remember whole chunks of time that last days or weeks, I don't know. Um, but I do remember really crystal clear moments of hurt. And the reason I remember them is because the amygdala, which is the oldest part of our brain, stores particularly traumatic or emotional memories because it knows that we need to rely on them to inform our later behaviour in life. And so now, uh, not, just, uh, not only does the amygdala store the memory, 
but when it's triggered again in a traumatic episode, it goes out and talks to the part of the brain that it needs to deploy to get you through this horrific memory. And sorry, I shouldn't say memory. It's not a memory. When you experience a traumatic episode, you are reliving it as if it is happening again right in the now. And the amygdala will zap the part of the brain that uses, uh, that invokes an anaesthetic to, to dull the pain of the sensations you're feeling. Um, it can do the fight or flight thing and make you start shaking. Um, it can make you black out. It's extremely powerful. And the reason it stays powerful is because by the time you get to your teenage years, your brain starts pruning itself. And so it says, it kind of sits back and does a stock take and says, what works? Um, we'll keep that. What don't you use very much? We're going to get rid of those synaptic connections because we don't need them. And unfortunately, the brain, because back in you know caveman days, it really was useful to have this traumatic response because it stopped you getting eaten by lions or stomped on by woolly mammoth. And the brain sits back and says, all right, this traumatic episode when you were seven was really, we got you through that using these um, really effective methods. We're going to keep those and redeploy them every time you have something even vaguely similar for the rest of your life. And that's what trauma is. And it's, it's and I, just, I, I don't, you know, I've got depression and anxiety as well, so I've got no problem with mental illness as a term. But tra PTSD particularly is not. It is an actual, um, it's just a different setup of the brain. And I have experienced people um, my, my own friends, um, not through malice, just not understanding why it is that I'm doing the things because I didn't understand it for 10 years. And I'm still learning about it, but I learned more in the last year and a half than I have in my entire life. And I feel like just the awareness of it at least allows me to temper um, some of the reactions. Um, it doesn't r remove the feeling, but I can at least intellectualise some of it. And to me, that's kind of the reason I wrote this book was because I didn't know about it until I got diagnosed. So that's what I'm trying to do now. Thank, Thank you. you. So these Thank are really um, serious and beautiful and affecting books. Uh, so I urge you all to read both of them and thank both writers for being here today and speaking, taking, just giving us the merest sample of the incredible co complexity yet human simplicity in the works that you have delivered. So thank you very much. And I also invite everyone to um, buy the book. And when you come, if you come for the book signing, to please make sure you maintain social distancing. So thank you both. I wish that every child could learn some of the framework lessons in this book <laughs> at kindergarten. So there's a bit of an ambition <laughs> for all of us. Um, and could I ask you to thank our writers in the usual way? Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. <laughs>